I always think of our dear brother, Dr. Barrett, if I understand the history of that hymn. Chris Anderson sat underneath a lecture that I sat underneath at a different time. I think he's a click or two younger than me. But Dr. Barrett's lecture and the Minor Prophets course, it was only two hours credit. But boy, when I think of my undergraduate days, I'm just sitting in that room. That were some mighty days. But Zechariah 3, the high priest change of garments. And a precious, it wasn't a lecture, it was a sermon on justification that anybody that took that class got. And I think there were a lot of eyes opened and a lot of hearts blessed in that day, those days. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4 this evening. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll try and be a little mindful. I'm not as worried tonight as I was this morning that if the clock, somebody may have put a new battery in and it's doing right, but time stood still in the morning service. I don't think that was an uh, indication of a breath of revival and anything like that. It was a very... Uh, easily explained phenomenon of the clock stopping and the preacher panicking and not knowing what time it was, but uh, hopefully this evening we'll not have that fear come upon us. I want to read from Hebrews 4, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole of the chapter, um, but beginning in verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now the we'll pause here, the, the clear reference is to the generation that came out of Egypt that the apostle has described in the closing parts of chapter 3 in the 40 years wandering and chastening in the wilderness and that generation perishing and not entering into the land. Then verse 3, continuing, for, which, for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, and that is Joshua, which is the same name in the Old Testament name for our New Testament name Jesus, if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Well, in reading there in verse 10, and trust the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's pause again and bow our heads together. Seek the Lord before we consider his word tonight. Heavenly Father, we tonight come 
corporately pause in your presence to acknowledge your presence, to acknowledge our need, and pray that you will give us of your Spirit both in opening and in hearing your Word. Lord, we rejoice to sing his robes for mine. Christ died under wrath so that we would never have to. And we are brought by his righteous life to enter into glory, enter into your eternal presence, which we do not deserve. But he has freely and happily merited for us. What a gospel. What wondrous love is this. And so we pray that you might give us gospel hearts. We've read today sober words already of universal guilt. And yet you have looked upon such guilty sinners and called us and saved us by your grace. Well, give us more grace. Give us tonight help in opening your word and in considering a portion of truth that sadly, though Lord, it's not only been in this day, but throughout many seasons of the history of your church has come under challenge and even for those that have embraced its truth has come under neglect and loss. We pray that you will give us hearts eager for your will, for your glory, and for your day. And so prosper our meditations this night we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I want this evening to continue our studies in the Lord's Day evenings here at, well, it's, I guess not so much the opening of the year as it was several weeks ago, but on the Lord's Day. We have thus far taken three Lord's Day evenings to look at some preceding studies and thoughts. The first we considered, and I just review for you this evening, that when we come to the Scriptures, we find that the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. One of the perennial objections to its being observed by the New Testament church is that it was a Jewish thing. And we find ample evidence in Genesis itself, I mean the clear statement of God's observing the seventh day. And remember, I hope that we'll come back to it, I hope that I'll remember when we come back to it, but that in itself gives us a, a very a very fertile implication of what's true and what is to be observed in the day. God was not in need of rest. There was no fatigue. There was no weariness that he experienced. Now, we do experience such things, and there is a physical component that is a secondary benefit uh, and help to us. But the primary truth, the principle at the core was a cessation God ceased from the activity of creation and he observed, he paused, and he commented upon that which he had done. And it was a pattern even for unfallen man to observe. And again, mindful of that, that creation ordinance of the Sabbath day. And in our second study, we considered as we came to Exodus 16 through 20 really there, that the Sabbath is a moral law. It's a moral command that was set apart with those other nine words as quite distinct from the remaining ordinances and laws that he gave to the nation of Israel at that time. 
You see the peculiar ways in which the ten words are distinguished from the other laws given to Israel. In Deuteronomy's second telling of the law, there's the phrase with regard to those ten words placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Again, what more striking uh, symbolism could be given than that? And it said once he spoke those words that he added no more. And yet we find that there were multiplied laws, multiplied ceremonies, multiplied instructions given to the nation beyond those ten words at Sinai. But they were distinguished from the rest. They were the republication of that moral law that was present in Eden. They were the summary uh, telling, the place where that moral law is summarily comprehended but the Sabbath is a part of that moral law. We came in our third study last time, or two weeks ago, I suppose, to consider the New Testament references that are so often put before us as there being a change or even an abandonment of the Sabbath. And in that lesson, perhaps more teachy than preachy, as it's often said, just going through seeing our Lord's treatment of the Pharisees, or more his reflections on the Pharisees' treatment of his disciples. Uh, I'm sure I rehearsed it, but I find our L. Dabney's comments on that so telling, where he said that these that supposed our Lord changed the Sabbath in order to defend the disciples' actions from the rebuke of the Pharisees find the Lord in an inconsistency. In order to defend his disciples, he's got to change the law to bring them out from under a real guilt. Instead of that being what's going on, our Lord is distinguishing the Sabbath law from human traditions, the traditions of the elders, and we see so many other places in the Gospels where the Lord speaks of their extra-scriptural traditions even reaching the level of contradicting and causing the law of God to be abandoned. There were ecclesiastical maneuverings that even brought them out from under real obedience. And it was a, a clearing of the Sabbath from those Pharisaic additions that's going on in the Gospels. And then those two celebrated, we might say, passages in Romans and in Colossians being instruction for the Lord's people with regard to Jewish feast days. And we know of those decades of transition between our Lord's ascension and really the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, there were so many questions and difficulties that the New Testament church and this new body with Jews and Gentiles brought together had to observe. We see Acts 15 so foundational in working through the question there even of circumcision. But it was the Jewish feasts, the extra Sabbaths that Romans and Colossians are dealing with and not the weekly Sabbath, not the creation moral ordinance that it is. Well, today we're going to come to look at uh, one of the other large aspects of our doctrine of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. And that is the change then if it's a binding and perpetual ordinance, if it is part of God's moral law that can never be changed, then why is it that the day of observance we do find changed from the seventh day, or our Saturday, to the first day, our Sunday? 
And when we come to the New Testament Scriptures, we give illustration of this. If I could give some preliminary observations, you folks should, well, I don't know if breathe a sigh of relief or a sigh of disappointment, but I was sorely tempted to bring Daniel Wilson's message on this aspect of the Lord's Day and virtually read it to you this evening. It would have been a little bit difficult. His English is the English of the 1820s, uh, so the vocabulary is a little different and the sentences are a little bit longer. But some eloquent presentation of truth. But he opens with uh, some preliminary observations with regard to the previous dispensations of redemptive history. If you look at the patriarchal Sabbath, if you look at that which was given in Eden and brought through to Sinai, of course, we find there that the patriarchal Sabbath is commemorating creation. And it is in following the pattern that was given in Eden of God's own cessation and rest on the seventh day that man was to follow. And we find that in the first giving of the law, uh, the Ten Commandments recorded for us in Exodus 20, that this creation ordinance, this aspect that in six days he created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested, that that is observed, that is part of the understanding. But yet when we come to the second great age, if we will, if we want to speak so broadly of just three ages in redemptive history, that patriarchal Sabbath that harks back to creation and again predates the fall, yet when we come to Deuteronomy in that second telling of the law, the generation that was entering into the land and their challenge there in Deuteronomy, that God has them remember not only creation, as Exodus 20 put before them, but to remember the Exodus that there was a peculiar way in which they were made God's people as he redeemed them from Egypt. And of course, the Exodus itself is the greatest biblical type of redemption. And so here we find that the Mosaic Sabbath, following on from the patriarchal, is commemorative of yet something else. Now not merely creation is understood and observed, but the great type of redemption is observed and held before them in their observance of the Sabbath day. Well, when we come to the Christian Sabbath, when we come to the New Testament, we find that what is added in, if you will, in this redemptive historical understanding, it's not merely now the type of redemption that is remembered in the day as the Passover brought them through, but it's the accomplishment of redemption. That redemption itself, that God himself, that the Messiah himself has entered into history. He has fulfilled all the prefigurations. He has performed literally what all the oxen and sheep that were slain looking forward to his coming could not perform. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, but the blood of Christ did. And when we come to the New Testament, the accomplishment of redemption, not merely in type, but in history, is commemorated. And we see that that lies underneath the transition in the New Testament day of worship from the last day of the week until the first. And so just by virtue of 
can we say, typology and commemoration. There's solid foundation and understanding for the new day of observance. And really, when you look at creation, it's not the particular day of the week, but it's the cycle. Six days of labor followed by a day of rest that is in view. That one day in seven that is to be remembered. But now we come to look at the scriptures themselves. We can easily see a fitting, should we say, typology that's underneath the change of day. But what about the scriptures? If you want to turn uh, to John's gospel, we'll just rehearse some of these. Some of these we may just mention and not read. But I put before you one of the statements of R.L. Dabney. He speaks about the New Testament examples of Sunday worship. And he says, they're not numerous, but they are distinct. And he also makes a very interesting point that we are bound by apostolic example as well as by didactic teaching. And you you find even example of that in the scriptures themselves. Uh, You read the pastoral epistles. There is the recognition of the office of deacon. There are instructions given with regard to the qualifications for office and how they are to serve and what they are to do and be in the church. But yet, when we go back to Acts, we just have the example of what happened. There was a need. They were to call out from among them men that would serve in that necessary matter. If you again come to one of my, I don't know if it's a quiz question or a test question. Is the word deacons ever used in Acts with regard to deacons? No. Uh, We know they are deacons from subsequent history and how they're named in the epistles, but they weren't even called deacons at that first time there in the church of Jerusalem. But yet when we come to the pastoral epistles, we see clearly that that apostolic teaching, that apostolic practice, that apostolic precedent was followed and binding upon the church. Well, so it is, and I would say even more so, with regard to the Lord's day. If you look at these examples, to again borrow Dabney's phrase, that are not numerous but distinct, we'll work through them just in the order of the canon of Scripture. In John 20, we come to the record in John's Gospel of Easter, of the resurrection. And you find that not only in John, but in all the Gospels, there's very careful attention paid to underscore, to have part of the inspired history, that it is the first day of the week. Now, we won't get into some of the discussions that come in that chronology of the Passion Week. Some of them are quite interesting. People debate what was the day of the crucifixion. Well, traditionally, it, historically, it's understood as Friday. Um, but yet three days. Well, some say, no, it's got to be Thursday for that to happen. No, some say it's got to be Wednesday, three days, three nights. Well, the Jewish reckoning, often in counting days, this is where I get in trouble with numbers sometimes. Do you count zero or not? Um, when you get to one, is that two and one, the second number? Uh, zero, one, sorry. But they count the day like in this case, the day of crucifixion, Friday. Saturday, the day in the tomb. 
And then Sunday, the Lord's day, the day of resurrection, very early in the morning, he's risen. Those three days are, are numbered. But it is upon this first day of the week that our Lord rose. And we see, and we've not too long ago studied the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. How purposeful and selective those appearances and visitations were. The disciples, perhaps for numerous other reasons than a day of public worship, are gathered, but yet it is to that gathering of his disciples that our Lord makes his appearance. And it is significant that first Sunday. Then we read in John 20 as well, toward the end of the chapter, verse 26, that on the eighth day, again reckoning by the Jewish reckoning, this is the following Sunday, that again, they're gathered together. And it is on this day that our Lord chooses again to manifest himself to the gathered disciples. And here, this significance is observed, but it becomes even more pointed when we come to see in Acts chapter 2 another reference, the next successive reference, which is the day of Pentecost. Now, I won't turn you back, but... If you do the studies and go to the older commentaries and brethren, you'll find if you turn to Leviticus and the reckoning of the Jewish holidays on the first day after the Sabbath and 49 days from there, that 50th day of Pentecost would have been always a Sunday. And it is on that Sunday, that first day of the week, that our Lord finds the disciples gathered together. Acts 1, they're gathered to pray. They were waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And if you see the things that occur on that day of Pentecost, you find both ordinances of the church performed ultimately that day after the preaching of the gospel. Of course, you see the outpouring of the Spirit that follows on from the gathered church in that day and in that place that here is a first day, here is a Sunday that is by divine providence singled out, marked. We can even as strong covenant theologians speak about the, the birthday, if you will, of the New Testament manifestation of the one church of God through all the ages. That's where the dispensationalists abandon us uh, and think, no, no, the whole thing just started then. Well, tonight's not the night for that. But here, God owned, if you will, again that day. He has owned another Sunday by giving his presence, by having his people gathered together, by blessing the preaching of the gospel and showing, in a sense, that first public experience of the ordinances of the church. So Pentecost in Acts 2 is striking. But if you turn now with me to Acts chapter 20, and as we turn to this passage, remember with me from this passage through to the last one we'll mention, decades are passing. This that we read in Acts 20 is now some 30 years after 
the day of Pentecost. And you think of the transitions, you think of the debates in the church, you think of apostolic practice, particularly, I mean, it would have been true in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem was not just some vague continuation of temple worship in that case or synagogue worship in the case of the other cities. It was a new thing. It was recognizing Christ. It was worshiping in the day of the resurrection of the risen Christ. But we find the example and practice that has been put in place by the apostles and obviously not only by their example, as we see in these first three references ourselves, but by their teaching that their followers would keep these things. And in Acts 20, we have a record here. It's really part of the celebrated history of the Apostle Paul's journey to Jerusalem. He has in his third missionary journey, he's had that long season in Ephesus, so remarkable, after which he wrote the epistle to Romans that we're dealing with in our Sunday mornings. But there's been a collection for the saints. We inadvertently read of that last Lord's Day when we read 2 Corinthians 8 instead of 1 Corinthians 8. But this collection is to be gathered. But Paul, beyond this, is burdened. He's passionate about visiting his people. We'll see in Romans his heart for Israel. Uh, he could wish himself accursed for them. I mean, what a statement we'll read in Romans. But as he journeys there, and we know the outcome of that journey, he's in a hurry. He wants to arrive before Pentecost. There's a season of weeks in between feasts in which he wants to be there when others are gathered from the varied nations, to be sure, among the Israelites themselves. And in Acts 20, if you look early in the chapter, um, sorry, I'm a page away here. <clears throat> in Acts 20, if you begin reading, um, let's start in verse 4. They accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now, again, the significance of what we're looking at Paul, if you read earlier in the context, is hastening, if so be, to get to Jerusalem before the feast. But when he comes to Troas, where his helpers have gathered before him, where the one spoke of them as the favored little church there, he tarries there. He arrived there in five days from Philippi where he journeyed, but abides there seven days, and this is one of the we sections of Acts, Luke recording, so he abode there seven days, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And then we read of the perils of sleeping in church afterward there. Um, but again, notice the significance of the sequence that Luke the historian is putting before us. Paul's in a hurry. His companions are waiting for him at Troas. He arrives. But instead of calling a special meeting, if you will, which probably happened a lot in apostolic times, he waits. What does he wait for? He waits for the first day of the week. Interestingly, 
waiting through the Jewish Sabbath to the first day of the week when the church met. And we see even the significance of what they were gathering together to do. They were gathering together to break bread. This is one of those passages that uh, those that feel the church should hold communion every Sunday uh, would lean upon because it's noted here that they broke bread on the first day of the week. Whether that, by implication, means we have to observe it every Lord's Day, well, that's a matter for debate, and it is not the majority that hold that it is necessary. But the point here is something was going to happen on that day. And at the gathering of the people at that happening, they would be breaking bread. Obviously, this is their day of worship. Paul anticipates, understands, isn't surprised by the fact that that will be the day that the church gathers. So he, even though he's in a hurry, and every indication we have in the history, Paul might not have been a patient man. Uh, He tarries until that day so that he might meet with the brethren. Now turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. What has Paul said? Again, it's an incidental and yet an inspired incidental remark. There's a special emphasis given for an offering, but Paul knows that there will be a gathering of the people on the first day of the week. And so here, again, 30 years into the New Testament history, we have not numerous, but yet Again, I love Dabney's turn of phrase there, distinct examples, distinct records of the people meeting on the first day, of the first day being the day in which they gathered to observe the ordinances, the first day that a part, as it has historically been, of their worship being bringing of their gifts and offerings unto the Lord. And so here, New Testament observance on the first day of the week is clearly put before us in the history. And now if you turn to Revelation chapter 1. I should perhaps have gotten out my confession. I'm sure there's one under the pulpit here somewhere in the pile. But to read the statement of the confession with regard to the Christian Sabbath, um, it makes in reference to the Sabbath from the creation until... I forget the phrasing there, but obviously to the New Testament church, it was observed on the seventh day. And from the resurrection to the end of the age, observed on the first day, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is the Christian Sabbath. Well, the reference, there will be an undisputed proof text to memorize when you get to that part of the catechism, is to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. We read here the Apostle Paul telling us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So here we're now an additional 30 years 
into the New Testament history. We have Pentecost. We have the days of Christ's post-resurrection appearances preceding that. We have the examples in Acts and Corinthians of first-day worship, of first-day gatherings. And here we have Paul's or John's statement, again, a given. There wouldn't be any lack of understanding here. Here he is in exile. Here he is separated from the church and the Lord's people. As we've studied and understand, perhaps part of a labor camp there. But what does he find himself doing on the Lord's day? Meditating. Seeking God. As one I was reading called it, holding Sunday, I think was the phrase. And it's there that the Lord chooses to meet with him and of course give him the visions of this final book of the canon of Scripture. But here, that day of worship observed, as we've seen consistently in the other examples, and yet a name given to it that would be recognized among the people, the Lord's day. Now, I don't want to take time. I actually did not make notes of these. But here we've gone from the the types, the the pictures of redemptive history that precede the New Testament change of day to the New Testament evidences of this is the day. Of course, that all presuming and building upon the continuity of a Sabbath, of the Sabbath itself. And the significance of the change is that here is the resurrection day. Here is, as we'll come in a moment as we close to consider the, the completion of the work of the new creation. But let's take a moment and consider the evidence in church history. There were several I read that went to great detail, not only listing, but supplying the quotations from numerous, we're not talking one or two, but multiplied references in the very early church fathers with regard to Lord's Day worship, with regard to and using the language of the Christian Sabbath. And one commented, and it's certainly the case, that among the many things we find in the uninspired church fathers, uh, some things are good and biblical, and some things they began to get off. Uh, They began to embrace, origin was influential in this, a spiritualizing method of interpreting the scriptures. A lot of errors began to creep in. But there was a uniformity, particularly even when you get to the very early fathers. I mean, some of them, Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John himself. Uh, His own pupils then following supply much of the early fathers. And their records consistently speak of Sunday as the Christian Sabbath and as the day of worship for the New Testament church. So we have this apostolic example. We have this apostolic title given to us in, John, in Revelation 1. And then we have the, the record of church history. So there doesn't seem any question about the propriety and the reality of the New Testament church from the beginning embracing the first day instead of the seventh day. Well, I wanted to read Hebrews 4 tonight to close with this 
and really just supply what is the obvious explanation. Hebrews 4, and we won't take time to try and expound it, the word that is used for rest throughout the chapter is a different word than what we find in verse number 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There's a word here, a sabbatism, uh, really, that Paul, I believe Paul, mentions here. But if you look through the context... You see here, and of course there's reference to the generation that came out of Egypt and their unbelief, and because of that they could not enter into the land. But the significance is is that once they even entered the land, that in the fulfillment, if you will, of that exodus being the type of redemption out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, slavery and bondage in Egypt, brought miraculously out and delivered the Passover being that final plague and, of course, the type of redemption that it is, and they pass through and enter into the land. That entering in that Joshua called Jesus in the authorized translation here, there was something beyond that. The rest that that typified was still again just a type. And when we come to the Old Testament Sabbath, And its observance still on the seventh day, again with fuller revelation than just that creation ordinance, but now the type of redemption, but the type again following on the seventh day, but when the anti-type comes, here's the reason that the day has changed from the seventh to the first. Because now we have not merely creation itself prior to the fall, We have not merely the great biblical type of redemption that Israel enacts for us, but we have redemption itself accomplished. We have in Christ the work of the new creation accomplished. And the resurrection is the completion of that work. The resurrection is the stamp of approval from the Father that His work has been accepted that his people are free. And it is entirely fitting that from that day of resurrection until heaven itself, until the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, that his people commemorate anticipating that eternal rest, that eternal Sabbath, by taking their earthly weekly Sabbath to remember the finished work not of creation, but of the new creation. The finished work of redemption. And so the significance of the change from the seventh day to the first is a precious recognition by his New Testament people that what has been promised has been fulfilled. That the work that Christ has done, and you see here even the parallel between God's work in creation and Christ's work in redemption put before us and there remaining still that anticipatory rest of the people of God. And I just encourage you, we haven't had or taken the time tonight to fully seek to expound Hebrews 4, but if you care to dive into the likes of a John Owen, um, a much easier and closer to us to read 
A.W. Pink powerfully argues from Hebrews 4 for the Lord's day and observance of it. But I say here, a precious part of Sabbath observance, the fuller commemoration of redemption's work finished, and that we follow a risen Christ and that historical connection with His apostles, with the biblical early church, and with the church through the histories beyond that first day of the week as our day of worship because we worship and recognize a risen Savior and another type of divine work that's finished and Christ has rested from. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, tonight we come and we thank you for the record of the finished work of Christ. We are reading and looking at Romans. and We've had cause to pause today and speak of death. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And we think of Christ's work of redemption. It being finished brings forth life. Life from the dead. Lord, there's something to celebrate. There's something repeatedly to remember. There's something to undergird all of our weekly gatherings and our New Testament seasons of refreshing and challenge and worship. So help us, Lord. Again, even swimming against wind and tide to have the joy of honoring this day, the joy of spending time without distraction. Lord, these are things that we command and seek to practice in our personal lives. Lord, we think highly of fathers who would reserve time off from work and take special seasons and plan special seasons to be with their wives and be with their families. Lord, if we commend such things and even the normal and natural things and normal senses, what of this ultimate sense of taking time to be with you? Pulling away from other things to remember you. Give us those desires. Lord, baptize your church afresh in these days. We've read from many authors from many different seasons of the church that have the same comment that very often the level to which the church observes the Lord's day is an indication of the church's devotion to Christ in every other way. Well, if that be the case, how weak is our devotion to you in these days? How much are we like Israel of old that ultimately you thrust from the land for 70 years, specifically choosing the duration of the captivity because they failed to remember the Sabbaths. And so, Lord, give us conviction, yes, but, Lord, beyond that, Give us desires that we might call the Sabbath 
a delight. There's a people that are enjoying their God. Lord, prosper us tonight. Encourage us even with the examples of your people in the Word. We read that New Testament church. There were ups and downs. There were victories. There were revivals. There were sins. But you were faithful. There was testimony given. And a people called out. We are among that people. In this age so far removed. Lord help us to give testimony. To the finished work of Christ. We ask these things in his precious and worthy name. Amen.